Good evening. Good to see everybody again. Well, I just want to thank Jessica for ruining everything I had planned tonight. I spent all afternoon studying. Okay, I know what I'm doing tonight. And she sings that song, and I'm thinking, no, I'm going to do what I was going to do next week tonight, because it's, it's a great opportunity. It's going to tie right in. That's right. Yeah, so let's go. So, open up to Hebrews chapter chapter 2 with me. <clears throat> Tying right into that. I, this, is, this is a passage I've been looking forward to, to getting to. And y'all, I really don't have any idea what I'm going to do with it. Because uh, everything I had in mind just went right out the window right there. But you know, sometimes, uh, I, those of you that are teachers and teach the scriptures, I don't know if you've ever had an experience like this. But so often, I will sp- I will literally spend all week preparing for something and getting everything right, notes, this, that, and the other. And I will be going to wherever it is I need to speak. And about five minutes away, the Lord Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, will say, Son, I know that's what you thought you were going to do, but this is what you're actually going to do. And I'm like, oh, Lord, yeah. And talk talk about fear. That puts me in the fear place when I don't know what's going on or what's supposed to be happening. Um, So you just have to trust Him. So Hebrews chapter 2, if you'll open up there. Uh, we're going to talk about this issue of fear a little bit and how Jesus uh, changes our whole relationship to one of the most terrifying realities about life itself. Uh, and if you will, just look in Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to jump right in at verse 10. And let, let me say this. Last week we looked at, uh, we took some big chunks out of Hebrews. And we began to develop this idea that, that the letter to the Hebrews shows how Jesus is a better mediator for his people. He is a better, more perfect high priest. He is a better, more perfect sacrifice. And therefore, we have a new covenant with better promises attached to that covenant. So tonight, we're going to start to look at some of the promises that come to us by way of Jesus and the covenant that we have through Him. And there in chapter 2, there's, there's two absolutely what I think are incredible truths uh, that, that we want to touch on. And they're seemingly, when we first see them, they're going to be seemingly unrelated. Uh, but as we bring it all together, I think you'll see how these things dovetail together. Uh, and the first is related to us being sons and daughters of the living God. And then the second is related to how Jesus has destroyed the devil who kept us bound by our fear of death. So the two very topics that Jessica was just singing about for us, uh, we're going to touch on those. These are some of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Um, and that's saying a lot, because I have most pages, every verse is marked up already in it. Uh, but, but these are specifically, I think, uh, captivating, powerful verses. So Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, talking about Jesus. And the writer tells us this. He says, For in me, bringing many sons to glory... It was entirely appropriate that God, now all things exist for Him and through Him, should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. That's talking about Jesus. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. And that is why He, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. And I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. And again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. Let me just deal with those verses and then we'll pick up there in verse 14 here in just a second. So, so notice um, 
Notice the main flow of this argument that the writer of Hebrews here, and there's some really interesting things that he says that dovetail into things that happen later in the letter that, that sometimes catch us off guard if you're not used to what he's talking about in this letter. And one of the first things, one of the first ideas that he developed is right there what he states in verse 11, that Jesus, the source of our salvation, should be made perfect through his sufferings. Now, anytime I've taught this letter, book, I get questions immediately about, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was sinless. Uh, so how is it that he needed to be made perfect through his sufferings, right? If he's sinless, why did he have to suffer to be made perfect? And that's an that's uh, excellent question. There's also another even more troubling statement. If you look over to verse five, uh, chapter 5, if you keep your finger there, verse uh, chapter 2, turn over to chapter 5 with me. And uh, at the, uh, verse 7, Hebrews 5, 7, if you've, if you've never seen this one before, this can be disconcerting at first glance, but it's powerful when you understand what he's saying here. Um, and it ties right into this theme, Hebrews 5, 7. He says, uh, during his earthly life, he, Jesus, offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence or because of his piety, I think some translations have there. Now look at verse 8. And though he was God's son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was declared by God a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. That was, that's the very topic that we looked at last week. Jesus, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Notice here, though, how he learns obedience through what he suffers. That's a powerful statement. Um, again, how, how is it, Jesus, we, we know, we affirm that Jesus is sinless. But how is it that he learns obedience? Right? That, that seems to be in conflict with what's going on there. So that he might be perfected. Uh, what's the writer talking about? Now, there, there's a lot of development we need to go through here, but let me just kind of jump to the um, jump to the conclusion. This writer, of course, is using language based out of the old Levitical law, and one of the one of the things that that really inhibits our understanding from uh, some of the portions of the Old Testament is that so many times figures of speech are translated into things that's more easily understood for us, and particularly in the passages that have to do with uh, sanctifying and qualifying a priest to serve in the priesthood under the Levitical law, uh, many times you'll see this in an English translation. You'll see the priest is washed and then blood is applied and different things are done. And at the end of that, uh, your English translation will have something that simply says, and he was consecrated for his ministry. But in Hebrew, there's an idiom that's used there, and it's a very powerful idiom. Uh, Instead of translating that as consecrated, the Moses says that his hands are made perfect. Now think about that. His hands are made perfect. What does that mean? What's that priest going to be doing with his hands from that point forward? 
handling blood and animal carcasses, right? Doing all the, all the priestly elements that he needs to do. And that's the very language that the writer of Hebrews is drawing on here. It's not that Jesus needed to be perfected in some type of spiritual sense. It's that in order for him to be a perfect, sympathetic, high priest for us, and those are critical words, a perfect, sympathetic high priest for us, the Lord had to take him through a consecration process, and that consecration process involved the very things that he suffered, which is interesting. It's the very things we read about in the Westminster Catechism tonight, uh, to some degree. So Jesus has become a perfect, sympathetic high priest for us in that everything that the Lord took him through, his sufferings particularly, qualified him to be a priest whose hands have been made perfect. Now he's equipped to deal with God's people in, the way, in a way, in the way, that no other priest, no other high priest could have done before Jesus or after Jesus or any other time. And so that's in the background of what this writer is talking about. And so back in Hebrews chapter 2, 10, uh, God has made the source of our salvation, Jesus, perfect through his sufferings. In other words, he has consecrated and qualified him to be a perfect high priest for us. Now, look at verse 10 again and put this again in the context. In bringing many sons to glory. That's the goal. And of course, like we said last week, the word sons there implies the women as well. Women are referred to as sons in the New Testament. Uh, You're not going to find a verse that says sons and daughters, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But let me just say that that women are treated uh, as co-heirs with the promises that Jesus gives. And so everybody in the New Testament is referred to as a son on some level. So Jesus, he is is bringing uh, sons to glory through what he's doing. And verse 11, it says, so the one who sanctifies, uh, that's Jesus. And those who are sanctified, that's us. We all have one Father. See that? Our Heavenly Father is the same Heavenly Father who is the Father of Jesus. Now, clearly, he's a father in a unique way to Jesus, uh, but that's not what the writer's focusing on here. Uh, he's focusing on the, the net effect of all of this, and that comes there at the verse of, uh, end of verse 11. So that is why, and I want you to meditate on this for a minute. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Hear that? That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them, you could put us in there, that's what he's talking about. Jesus is not ashamed to call us Brothers, That passage always blows my mind every time I read it. Whenever we think of Jesus, we think of Him as Lord, as He truly is. We think of Him as Savior, as He truly is. We think of Him as Creator. As Paul says in Colossians, all things were created by Him, through Him, for Him. We think of Him as the one who has the name which is above every other name at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is the Messiah to the glory of the Father. We think of Him in all those high ways, and it's important to think of Him that way. But how often do you think of Him as your older brother in the faith? And He is not ashamed to call you, this is my brother. And if I could say it, this is my sister. He's not ashamed to enter into that intimate family relationship with us. And let me just suggest that that is one of the major ways that Jesus literally changes everything. 
apart from a handful of individuals in the Old Testament. That type of relationship with the living God was not offered to the people as a whole. Ever in the Old Testament. And now Jesus welcomes His people into that close, familial relationship so that He's not ashamed to call us His brothers and sisters. When He stands in heaven... Uh, intervening for us, interceding for us 24-7. He does it not just as Lord and Savior, but as an older brother in the faith who is not ashamed to call each and every one of us his brother. Read on what the writer of Hebrews says. I I love this next statement. This is uh, clearly from the Psalms. And he uh, is quoting and putting these words in Jesus' mouth. So this is Jesus speaking. I will proclaim your name to my brothers. That's Jesus uh, giving praise and prayer to Father God. I will proclaim your name, Father God, to my brothers. And I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Uh, Here this is probably looking forward to a day when we are all gathered together in Jesus' presence. Ties into the hymn we sang tonight when we all get to heaven. right? Uh, This is looking forward to the coming of the kingdom though with the fulfillment of all things. And in that day, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but what this psalm is implying is that in that day of that great congregation, Jesus is going to stand in our midst and he's going to sing hymns and praise to God for the salvation and the work that's been done in and through him that gives him a great family that he is not ashamed to call brothers. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. That's, that's what I think of. On the worst days that I have in this life, and those aren't very bad days, comparatively, I think about those things. This is not it. This is not the end. There's something far better coming that you cannot even get your mind around right now. Read on. Look at what the next thing he says. Verse 13. Again, he says, I will trust in him. That is Jesus himself saying, I will trust in him, God the Father, Heavenly Father. And then this last statement. And again, he says, here I am with the children God gave me. Now look at that. Look at that. Here I am, Father, in your midst with the children that God has given me. Not only does Jesus look at us as his close family, brother and sister, He looks at us as His children, as His offspring. Jesus who had no physical offspring, despite what that idiot Dan Brown says about it. He had no physical offspring. Uh, But He does have offspring in us. And here, He gathers together in the presence of Father God and He says, here I am with the children that God gave me. This is even alluded to in that great passage in Isaiah 53 about the suffering uh, suffering servant. Uh, Once he's made restitution for sin, he will prolong his days and he will see his offspring. He will see his offspring. Jesus has created a new family before God in which we are his brothers and sisters and in which we are his spiritual children. In fact, I'm going to come back to this a little bit later. Not only are we his children, but we are his eternal inheritance. We're the, we, you and I, we are the inheritance that Jesus is going to get when all things are made complete. He, he, he owns the known universe. He created everything by, through, and for Himself. And when it comes time to get His inheritance, it's us. And by the way, what does He do with His inheritance as an older brother? Right? It's the firstborn. 
in the family that gets the inheritance and oversees what he does with it. And what does he do with it? He shares it with all of us. His reign and his rule and his power. Go read the book of Revelation. I'm teaching the book of Revelation right now. And many verses in the Hebrew Scriptures that were applied only to the Messiah in the book of Revelation get applied to God's people in a very powerful way. Absolutely mind-blowing. And here, great verse. Uh, Jesus sees us as his brothers and sisters. He sees us as his children, as his spiritual offspring. Now look at verse 14 with me. I, I could talk about that for much longer, but I want to touch this other part as well. Talking about the fear. So notice what happens. Verse 14. So, since the children... All have flesh and blood in common. Jesus also partook in these, or shared in these, so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Not only has Jesus been and is a greater and more perfect high priest for us. Not only is he a greater and more perfect sacrifice, he has given us better and more magnificent promises through everything that he's accomplished for us. And one of the things that he's done is he's defeated the devil who had the power of death. And now Jesus is able then to free all those who belong to him from their fear of death so that death no longer is a real threat to us. Death is no longer, in our conception, the period on the end of the sentence that's our lives. Jesus takes that away. Just as he was raised from the dead, so also will we be raised from the dead with him. Uh, Again, in the book of Revelation, when John, uh, the, 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 the beloved apostle, who, is, who may have been closer to Jesus than any of the other 12 that walk with Jesus. In fact, if you remember, on the night of the uh, betrayal of Jesus and the Last Supper, Jesus has just told him, listen, one of y'all is going to betray me. And, and Peter motions across to John and says, find out who he's talking about. And John just leans his head back over on Jesus' shoulder. You remember this? So close to Jesus, he just leaned his hand back over his shoulder. Master, who are you talking about? And Jesus says, whoever dips with me next, that's the one that betrays me. And we know that nobody knew what he was talking about. Because he dips with Judas and then says to Judas, what you must do, do quickly. And they're all just sitting around. If Peter had really figured out what was going on, you think Judas would have got out of that room? Probably not. That's probably what was kept from Peter. Right? Probably why Jesus said, no, no, you don't need to understand fully what's going on. But here's John who has this intimate relationship with Jesus. And in Revelation 1, he sees the glorified Jesus. In chapter 1, he first hears him. He's, he's called up into heaven to receive these visions. And he hears this uh, voice like many trumpets, like the sound of rushing water. And he turns around to see who it is. And he sees Jesus in all of his glory, fiery eyes. You can go read the description. He, he looks like somebody made out of metal that's just been pulled out of a hot furnace, glowing with his glory. And after Jesus addresses him, you remember John falls down at him like a dead man. You remember this? Falls down like a dead man. And I love the next scene. Jesus comes over and he touches him with his hand. And he says, John, don't be afraid. Look, I have the keys of death and of hell. Right? John, I control the final enemy. That's under my purview. That's under my control. 
Again, Jesus changes everything through his death, burial, and resurrection in that death is no longer under the control of the enemy. And let me just also say this. Nothing has ever really been under the control of the enemy. Uh, Those things have been given over to him for a time in the Lord's sovereign purposes. But Jesus always had a plan. The Father always had a plan they were working toward. And now here Jesus, he's defeated the last enemy, which is death, so that all those who belong to him, his brothers and sisters in faith, his spiritual children, now they no longer have to fear death as well because we are part of a family where death is irrelevant. We may die physically, but we will never die spiritually or eternally. And even if we die physically, there is the hope and the promise that our bodies are going to be resurrected in the last day, put back together with our spirits in a glorified body that we cannot even imagine now. And that all comes through what Jesus has accomplished for us. Death has no stranglehold over us. And again, if we're freed from that, then whatever the threat is there. One of my favorite book titles... And all of Christianity is a book written by a guy named John Owen, a a, um, Calvinist uh, teacher, uh, talking about, uh, Mark was talking about the five points of Calvinism. At some point, if if you're into Calvin and Calvinism, you've got to read John Owen, and his works are practically inscrutable now to the modern mind. Very difficult reading. But one of of my favorite book titles of all time, he has a book called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. The death of death and the death of Christ. Magnificent. And that's what's happening here. Through his death, Jesus has completely destroyed not only the one who has the power of death, but death itself. So again, it has no real power over his people. And look at the conclusion here. Verse 16. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but instead to help Abraham's seed. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tested and has suffered, he is able to help all those who are tested. Now, again, we could spend several hours talking about just the conclusion there. But just hit the high point with me. Notice that the net effect of this two things. Jesus had to go through everything that he suffered, everything that he went through. Uh, That meant all the sufferings that he had in his life, carrying the sins and illnesses of his people, going through crucifixion and death, all of those things that he endured. And the reason for it is so that he could be a, a, a faithful and sympathetic high priest. And again, I, I, I love the implications of that. Because when you and I go to Jesus with our fears, when, when we go to Him with the things that we are tempted by, number one, there's nothing that we're going to take to Him that He has not first already been through. Endured. But temptation to the point of sinlessness... <laughs> We usually give in, but he knows what it is to endure under temptation and not give in to it. And this is the really stunning thing to me. Jesus, and and let me just say, I'm going to throw out a big theological card here, and then I'm going to run out because it'll take me some time to prove it. But one of the things I think the New Testament makes clear is that when Jesus became a human being, he did not play the God card. He at no point in his human life drew 
on his divinity to do the things that the Lord God called him to do. When he's tempted, he has to be tempted as a man. When he suffers, he has to suffer as a man. And the reason I think this is critical is that at any point, Jesus had played the God card, so-called. He could never call us to follow his example, because you and I can't do that. We don't have that spade in the back pocket that we can pull out. Jesus had to suffer. He had to be tempted completely as a human being, 100% fully, so that he can do this, so he can be a faithful but sympathetic high priest. When we go to Jesus and we put our fears before him, when we go to Jesus and we put our temptations before him and we call out for help, he doesn't do this. He doesn't say, listen, I've been through all that. I came through it fine. I don't know what you're worried about. No, what does he do? This is his response. Listen, I've been where y'all are, and it's hard as whatever blank you want to put there. It's very, very difficult. He is sympathetic to our call. He is sympathetic to how we need help. And why? Because, again, he changes everything. He has entered into human history. The Lord God incomprehensible, taken on a human body to suffer for us, to give himself for us. Why? Number one, so he can claim us as his own, so that through his suffering and through his high priesthood, he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. He is not ashamed either, and actually rejoices in the fact that we are his spiritual offspring. And on top of all that, the promises that he give us, he's given us, And one day we're going to see the fulfillment of all those things are promises that include the death and destruction of death itself so that there's really ultimately nothing that you and I have to fear. There's nothing that overtakes us that Jesus is not able to help us in. And here's the really big thing. We're going to come back to this next week. You and I can go boldly into his presence with no mediator, No other sacrifice needs to be made. No other priest is necessary. No other endless incantations of prayers and anything else. We can go boldly into His presence to find help whenever we need it. Boldly into His presence. And next week I'm going to develop on that idea to show how that too is something entirely different. Something entirely new that we are given in Jesus Let me close us in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for all the ways that you bless us and provide for us. Thank you for everything tonight. Uh, Thank you for all those who have come out and braved the cold. And... um, to come together, to, to fellowship together, to get to know one another better. And ultimately, we want to know you better. We want to know you more deeply. You have blessed us uh, absolutely beyond comprehension with all that you've given to us in the person of our Lord Jesus. And there's not a day that goes by that I know uh, me and others probably in this room think about what an incredible blessing it is to be where we are in history after the cross. Uh, being able to see so clearly many things that the forefathers in the faith only saw at a distance or only saw in shadowy form, uh, but did not have the substance of it yet. And yet we can see these things clearly that you've accomplished in Jesus. And not only that, we have a clear idea of what's coming to us in the future. And that is the kingdom 
which is overseen by our Lord Jesus, which cannot be slowed down. It cannot be stopped. uh, It cannot be made ineffective. And so we yearn for the day when his kingdom comes, when he comes to make all things right and to finish the work that he started so many years ago. And so we give you all praise and all thanks for all these blessings. And we pray, Father, that through the work of your spirit, you would move in our hearts and minds to be people who love you with all that we are and give all that we are to you in service and sacrifice because you're worthy. And we ask all this for Jesus' awesome name's sake. Amen.